0: Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is my friend, Dr. Joan Walton, a researcher in the School of Education, Psychology and Language at York St. John University in the UK. Joan has had an interest in consciousness studies from her early twenties, influenced initially by the work of Carl Jung, which led her to the work of other transpersonal psychologists, philosophers, scientists and writers about religions and spiritual traditions. Her focus has always been on the relevance of intellectual exploration for how we live our lives on a daily basis. And her working life in social work and education has reflected this. Passionate about the importance of early years, Joan's current research focuses on how to enhance the quality of intergenerational relating with the aim of creating inclusive communities which encourage connection and compassion through the nurturing of mutually caring relationships across generations. Central to this is the idea of participatory consciousness in which everything and everyone is interconnected. Joan is a member of the Board of Directors in the Scientific and Medical Network, a member of the Galileo Commission Steering Group, and she's chair of the Executive Committee of the International Network for the Study of Spirituality. Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations, Joan. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to plunge uh, straight in with the first question about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. And of course, there could be more than one here um, because you've changed your orientation over the years.
1: Yes, yes, there's certainly been many shaping moments. But if I think about early on, not so much one moment, but perhaps a period of my life because when I left school, instead of going straight to university, I went into residential childcare. So at the age of 18, I was working in a children's home before the 40-hour week. So basically, I was living in for 24-7 with a couple of days off per week and uh, living my life with very dysfunctional children or children coming from very disadvantaged, dysfunctional backgrounds and the four levels of distress and behaviors etc was just beyond my experience so that kind of threw me into the deep end of what it meant to be human at a quite distressing level and and made a great impact on me because in its own way I'd had quite a uh, enclosed relatively secure childhood and I wasn't really aware that this level of trauma would existed And I stayed in that for over 18 months and uh, became really quite depressed and isolated and realised that I wasn't really old enough to look after myself, far less children who needed a lot of help. And But it did make me aware of the kind of range of humanity of what goes on in people's lives. And it generated in me a great interest in learning much more about what it meant to be human.
0: Yes, goodness, it certainly is the deep end, uh, as you say. And then did you have any other orienting moments when you were changing direction?
1: Well, I think when I was 42, my partner and soulmate died very suddenly of a heart attack completely unexpectedly it was a, a period of time when i had if you like been through a kind of watershed in my life where i was not taking a kind of had withdrawn from my interest in spiritual matters to a certain extent that had been evident through my 20s and that just plunged me straight back into the deep questions of life because when someone so close to you and to my daughter dies so suddenly like that, that certainly makes a major impact on you and your life. So that actually created a real turning point for me. Which led me to the scientific and medical network, actually, because after the through the grief and trauma and devastation, after six months, when I was just beginning to get my head above water a little bit, I went on a silent retreat, which I'd not actually experienced before. And on the second afternoon of the, that silent retreat, I was just going through in this beautiful retreat centre in Herefordshire in the library and going through some leaflets. And one of these was on the scientific and medical network. And uh, I just read through it and thought wow this is the place for me I need to find out more about this so I ended up going to an event which I think Hylia Prigashine was in on time in in May Mm, 1995 that's right and then I think to the first Beyond the Brain conference in Cambridge in uh, August 95 if I got my dates right I think it was the first one indeed uh, so that just was a real turning point in terms of um, moving me back into that deep spiritual journey and also enabling me to make friendships and connections that I have still and of course to meet you at that point in time, David. So we've had that uh, connection since that point in time as well. Yeah, so.
0: very true, very true. Um, and then in your 20s, did you have any influential mentors or teachers uh, in terms of giving you advice and guidance?
1: No, I've thought about this a number of times because people quite often identify one person in their lives that has influenced them. And I've kind of searched my mind and I can't really think of one individual. But actually, what has influenced me, I think, is something quite different. It's more the kind of role that Many women play in a very quiet way, not seeking attention and yet make an enormous difference in the world. And this struck me for the first time when I was in India in my early 20s. I was there with a girlfriend from university and we were spending several months in India and a set of circumstances took us to this rural Indian village where we were invited to eat at home of a, of an Indian family and they were very poor. They lived in a home that was basically a mud hut and just stone floor, not proper bedding, not proper sanitation, nothing, the kind of extreme of poverty, if you like. But the mother made for us this lovely meal of rice and vegetables, which she served to us on a large banana leaf. And she did all this with such grace and calmness and a sense of peace, and it was obvious that she was quite a kind of supportive, influential person in her local community. And I just remember thinking, wow, here is someone who's making such a positive difference in the world to people like her, and yet she's so humble, her name will never be known, but I will remember her, and I always have done. And I think what that's done is just um, made me very sensitive to the vast army of people, mainly women, I have to say, who live that quiet life of service. So for example, in my social work days, when I was a practicing social worker, I would do a lot of work with foster carers. And uh, you'd get some foster carers who would take children in, the kind of children I'd started working with in my early days, and there'd be huge behavioral disturbances, would turn their lives upside down. And these women would just create a stability and a calmness and a sense of acceptance of those children till such a time where they could achieve a longer-term family situation in their lives. And they didn't get much from it because they didn't even get a longer-term relationship from with the children. They were just there to provide support in the meantime. And they didn't get paid very much. They certainly had low status, not very many, much recognition. But I just felt what an important role they play in our society and in a sense much more influential than many people who seek power and status and the the highlights if you like. So I think what I'm influenced by is the knowledge that there are all these many, many people in the world offering that kind of life of service and to me, they're making a more positive difference in the world than most people who have a position of power and uh, status.
0: Very interesting, Joan. It actually reminds me of an experience I had in India as well in 2006. I was there with the International Futures Forum and we went to a slum one afternoon to meet the local representative women in a garage um, where they had a computer um, which h- hooked them up to the supply chain so they could see when their subsidized food had been dispatched and make sure it wasn't um, sidelined and purloined on the way um, before it got there because a, a lot of these shipments would just disappear. Anyway, the women were all just beaming and they looked so happy even though they were in these sort well, of straightened circumstances. And so I, I asked, I asked them, Uh, One of them, I said, um, you look so happy. You know, how come you look so happy? And he said, oh, we're so pleased to see you. (laughs) You in the plural. Um, (laughs) And and it's it's this happiness in, in simplicity, in simple things, which is, you know, a great contentment and wealth, actually. That's real wealth, as Epicurus said, to be happy with what you already have. Yeah, I've
1: spent quite a a lot of time in India and I think that is there in abundance, you know, especially in beautiful places. If you go up towards the Himalayas and all the rural areas where they're living in wonderful scenery but have no money or completely poor, but somehow they radiate this happiness and and contentment. And sometimes I think being in that environment is much more important than being brought up in a, a home which is great wealth and status but perhaps little else.
0: Well they say happiness is an inside job <laughs> um, so let's go on to books that have shaped your life and thinking and I know one of these was Memories, Dreams, Reflections by Jung, you know, his autobiography but no doubt yeah. there are others you'd like to well, mention. Well
1: yes but absolutely I think uh, that has got to be a, a pivotal one because I um, I, came, I I have no idea, I've tried thinking in retrospect how I came to be reading Carl Jung's autobiography and I absolutely can't think how because it wouldn't have been a kind of normal uh, book to be in my life. But it was just after I had left residential childcare and I was thinking of going to university and uh, I remember reading it on a long trip and getting absolutely entranced by it, mainly because of his early life. I had been brought up in a very... A strict Christian tradition. My parents were Church of Scotland missionaries. And although I'd left, uh, I'd rejected the church at the age of 16, I think I was still left by the trauma. I couldn't believe there was nothing, but I didn't understand what to make of all this kind of religious stuff that had gone on in my life. And reading Carl Jung, he was brought up in a very kind of similar Christian tradition and had issues with his parents and so his whole way through that I just found absolutely fascinating Um, and I'd felt very alone in my kind of struggle up till then so reading him made me feel much less alone and then of course he went on to his encounters with the unconscious which fascinated me because I always felt that there was a kind of um being or sourced my being that was me and not me and I was quite interested in that. So it was reading young that uh, led me in the direction of the second book and possibly even stronger influence on in my life by a person called PW Martin. Now I don't this is oh, not I know famous, the book. Oh you know the book. Yes. I'm glad. Is, not yes. Not many people do. So it's great that you do. But he'd written a book called An Experiment in Depth. And it was based on the work of Young, Arnold Toynbee and T.S. Eliot. So basically psychologist, historian and poet. And um, it was very, very deep stuff published in 1955 at the time of the Cold War, when the the world was in as difficult a place as it is now, but for different reasons. And uh, he he was exploring the dynamic potentialities of the deep unconscious, the immense creative and destructive forces latent in the human psyche. And he was saying that these potentialities have been used principally in their destructive aspect as a means of achieving absolute power. And the purpose of his book was to investigate whether and how those forces could be used creatively. So I became very engaged in that and, and in the idea of the active, Young's idea of the active imagination, which Martin spoke about a lot. And it led me into a regular practice of meditation and journaling, which was immensely helpful to me as I was exploring who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. And in fact, translated over time into a form of automatic writing, in which in a sense, I just felt someone took over the writing and and I was writing in ways, I was writing content that I didn't really know where it was coming from. And as part of that I realized, I didn't realize at the time, but when I read over it later, there would be times when the I would change to a U, And so I felt that I was channeling something through me. So that was a great um, influence on my life over a few years for much of my 20s, really, and was quite a healing process. It enabled me to work out and resolve some of the sources of my angst and distress that had been adversely affecting me in my early 20s. Another book, yeah, Robert Ornstein, The Psychology of Consciousness, which first came out in the early 1970s. (laughs) I think that was the first one that I read who was... um, Overtly, so so actively exploring consciousness as a phenomenon and the neuroscience of consciousness and the idea of the different sides of the brain that Ian McGilchrist is developing so extensively now, and then relating that to kind of religious and spiritual experiences. So that enabled me to pick up this interest that I had already been developing in consciousness
0: very interesting to go back to this P.W. Martin book. I'll have a look at it when I'm next in Scotland because what he says about the use of the destructive capacities is no less true today than it was when he wrote it. And there's a lot of money to be made out of this kind of activity, as we know.
1: I think it's still a relevant book for anyone these days. I mean, I've gone back to it recently just to look at it and, you know, it talks about Toynbee's withdrawal and return and the importance of kind of retreating into our inner lives and working out what's going on and then bringing it out into our outer lives. And I think there's so much in there. We, We, in our present political context, which I think, you know, I'm very engaged with, we just talk and live so superficially all the time. And uh, I think it is to our great loss that that happens. It appears to be that we've lost in many respects the ability to uh, think and connect at a much deeper level. And I think a book like Martin's encourages us to see the importance of doing so, and also gives us a way of enabling us to go in that direction.
0: Yes, and then Arnold Toynbee records some of his spiritual experiences in his autobiography called Experiences. Now he had quite a lot of experiences, and then he didn't give the Gifford lectures, a historian's approach to religion, around the same time, sort of mid nineteen fifties. Let's let's go on to see: is there any key moment of insight in your work in relation to the nature of consciousness that you'd like to tell us about?
1: I'm not sure that there's a moment again, uh, David. I mean, I think um, this... More of
0: a process.
1: It's more of a process. I think this came when I was being asked by yourself and Marjorie to write the book for spiritual awakenings because most people who contributed seem to have had that one Damascus moment in their lives, whether that was through meditation or some uh, kundalini influence or taking LSD or some kind of to get an altered state of consciousness that was quite a revelation. And that has not happened to me. So I just see it as um, I mean, I've had some very deep experiences, as I've been saying, and I think that process of journaling in my 20s, you know, I just feel that there was an evolution of my own consciousness that took place during that time. And uh, there was a bit of a watershed in the 30s when I got very involved and, you know, got married and had a daughter and all of that, and then got thrown back into it uh, when I had the kind of the, the sudden bereavement, and it's continued since then. And I still retain the journaling practice to a certain extent, not nearly so much as I did. But I just consider, you know, for my PhD, I did a ran a cooperative inquiry, which was what we understand by transformative living. And one of the first questions that we asked as a group was, what do we understand by transformation? And there came to be three understandings of it. There was the kind of transformation, which was that one-off event, which alters your whole perspective of life. There's the kind of transformation that happens when someone has been meditating consistently there's so engaged in a spiritual practice over some time whether that be meditation or yoga or Tai Chi whatever and then there's the third category where I guess I fitted into which is more than if you're just being open to possibilities living your life in a way that's open to what's going on around you and being prepared to respond intuitively and spontaneously to what's happening in the present moment then there are continual, tiny shifts in consciousness, but significant for all that. So I just see my life as being much more incremental in that sense and being more about paying attention to the world and being responsive to what's going on in the world.
0: Which is a maturation process, isn't it? I've just been reading a book last night on neuroaffective meditation, not a phrase I'd come across before. Um, And she goes through the stages of maturation in relation to meditative practice, which is very interesting. So let's go on to this. the next question, which is how your understanding of consciousness influences the way you live your life, which I'm sure it does.
1: Well, absolutely. So my understanding of consciousness always has started with experience. I am, in much of my research, I'm an action researcher. And action research isn't given a lot of status in our academic world. Although, interestingly, Martin talks about it in his book. He says we all should be, all thinking intelligent people should become action researchers. And actually, I think that was the first time I came across that term and became interested in it. But it's fundamentally You know, we have an experience, we're having an experience now sitting, having this conversation. Uh, You think about it, you reflect on it. You think about what's going well, what's not going so well, how it can be improved and then you know, sit back and, you know, conceptualise what's going on. That's where the theoretical element comes in. What's actually going on here? Um, How can I understand this theoretically, conceptually? Can I think it through? Does this have a different kind of meaning or significance than I've been putting on it to date? And then perhaps think about a different way of living or a different way of responding that will enable you to make an improvement in what you do and how you live your life. Now that process can take place over a long period of time or it can be instantaneous. You just kind of live in that kind of way each moment. And in a sense, that is how I try to live my life, just staying with this integrated sense of reflection and thinking how things can be done differently. But the ground of that is experience. So at every single moment, we're having an experience and I am a real believer that no theory should be considered valid unless it resonates with your own experience. So right from the outset, and I think this is why I rejected the church, I don't just accept someone else's theory for the sake of it. I don't adopt a set of beliefs or a set of doctrines. It's important to me to develop my way of understanding the world from first principles and that's where I stand in relation to consciousness really we're all conscious we all experience consciousness all the time we wouldn't be having this conversation without consciousness it's not important it's not possible to be human without consciousness and very I experience consciousness at a very very deep level it's not something that goes on in my brain it's something that I experienced at a very deep level of myself and I explore what that actually means in an experiential way through talked about journaling but just through actions through talking with others through relationship and develop my understanding of what it means and what its significance is through that then I'm interested in the theories I'm interested in the theories that help to reflect my experience. So in that sense, I guess I've become quite supportive of the work of Bernardo Kastrup and his analytic idealism. And although I don't think any theory perfectly reflects necessarily how we are, to me, as things stand at this moment in time, his theorising is as close to my experiencing of consciousness that, uh, that I'm able to articulate
0: so that's a pretty good fit in terms of correspondence. Yes, and he's he's very interesting, and and there's been a thread recently in relation to his philosophy, um, with respect to survival of consciousness, which is something he's not that interested in. Uh, anyway, a couple more questions to ask you. The one is um, about a proverb or favourite quote. Um, do you have one or several that you live by, or mm-hmm that you you recall on a regular basis?
1: I think it's the one that uh, is somewhat cliched but it's to thine own self be true I think that has been a guiding principle through my life it's very important to live an authentic life so when I say to thine own self it's it's accessing where I believe my sources and my belief in terms of consciousness. So my ontology really has become over time, if I was to reflect what my ontological view on life is, is that we are each unique expressions of an infinite and eternal consciousness that has the core qualities of love and creativity and has intelligence. So that's where I've come to in terms of my own ontological framing. And so, when I say to thine own self be true, it's the challenge is how do I more perfectly reflect that universal consciousness with its qualities of love and creativity? How do I live that principle and that energy as an embodied being in this world? Um, So, this to thine own self be true. And I think if I'm correct, the place in where where Ian McGilchrist presented in London recently, that was actually Conway Hall. The Conway Hall, I think that was the the saying that was right across the top of the hall.
0: I think you're right, and 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 maybe I, I entirely agree. Incidentally, with your universal consciousness and uh, us being uh, individual expressions of that, and that has all sorts of implications. But it sounds to me like to thine own self be true is probably the answer to the last question as well any advice you might give to your younger self or maybe Um, not
1: mm, i think my advice to my younger self would be have more confidence i lacked a huge amount of confidence when i was uh, in my younger days i couldn't have had my this conversation with you i couldn't speak very well in groups so although I think even then I would have said to their own self be true and that kind of guided me, I did not, I felt very separated from other people and felt quite isolated. So I think now perhaps I would say, oh, separation is an illusion. Perhaps that would be the phrase I would choose. Separation is illusion and just develop confidence from knowing that we are you're actually interconnected with everybody else and we are all part of that same deep consciousness and I think it was that recognition over time and that experience over the years that has helped me gain the level of confidence that I have now Uh, so I would have liked to have learned that at a much earlier age David.
0: (laughs) Joan thank you so much for being on Imaginal Inspirations and sharing your wisdom and life experience.
1: Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure.